Well done. Well done for catching the vision of parish nursing. Well done. Well done for having a sermon series on health and wholeness. Well done. But it's not good enough. I am here as an extreme prophet of the need for you to become a healing church. And I'm going to try and persuade you. And the rest of this sermon series will try and persuade you. That the key thing for you to be is a healing community. And that the parish nurse is not just an appendix to the church. And the healing ministry and the prayer of uh, prayers of healing in this church are not just appendices for those who are interested. And that healing and wholeness and care of those who are sick is not just something for those who are interested in it. This is core activity, I'm trying to suggest. This is your main busyness. I'm not alone. For centuries, there have been people who stand up and say the church should not be like a golf club, or something similar, but should be like a hospital. This place should not be a museum of saints. It should be a hospital for sinners. This is Pope Francis, who just said something rather similar. The church needs most the ability to heal wounds and to warm the hearts of the faithful. I see the church as a field hospital after battle. We want here the wounded, the lame, the blind, the broken. Odd bods. I hope your church is full of odd bods and awkward, difficult people. I see your vicar nodding. (laughs) So how can we make sense of this biblically? So you've got a sermon series and I thought a good way to start would be with the Old Testament's view of health and wholeness. And I've suggested this passage from Hardcore Isaiah. I mean, we're in the middle of Isaiah here and that reading came completely out of context and it may not have made a lot of sense. So we're going to take a run-up at it. So here's the beginning of the run-up. So this is two chapters before and what we have here is a vision of an apocalypse. Isaiah speaking... On behalf of God says God will lay waste the earth, will make it desolate, will twist its surface, will scatter its inhabitants. The earth shall be utterly laid waste. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. So this is our starting point for today's reading. God's vision of just how awful and miserable we are and what desolation we deserve. The next chapter, the chapter 
immediately before what we read is the promise of salvation. O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old. Isn't that lovely? Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. God will save us. And he saves us for what? And the reading that we uh, have just heard and we're going to dwell on for a few moments now is a picture of what God's restored world would look like. And uh, I want to pick out a few themes. There's a theme of physical security. God will make our world safe. He will bound it with walls, with rock. And as we read day by day of the awful migration of Syrians, we see the impact of what it is to be a people without physical security, without peace. One of the most interesting experiences I've had in my work was talking to neurologists, brain doctors in Iraq who had looked after people when we were bombing Iraq. You'll remember that, a while back. And there were obvious consequences of that for the health of the country. But there were some very unobvious things. So people in multiple sclerosis people with multiple sclerosis in Iraq, the disease that I studied, who faced being bombed by us, had attacks of their disease a week or so after each bombing. You remember we sent over these planes, wave after wave, and they had an impact even on the inflammation in the brains of people with multiple sclerosis who were not hit. And the only explanation that we could come up with is that this was because their brains and inflammation in their brains had been provoked by the feeling of insecurity and danger. So something political was having a very real molecular effect. This passage talks about mind. In fact, the word in Hebrew used for mind here is only used nine other times in the Old Testament and it's a very curious word. It also means imagination or thought. It's interesting that in this passage, thinking of what God's world would be like when we are restored that one of the images is of a steadfast mind, a stable mind. But the word I really wanted to dwell on was the couple of times that the word soul comes in this passage. 
And this is really important as we get our ideas right about health and wholeness now. As you read the word soul, it may be that you think of something that is immaterial, something that is eternal, and that is outside of you in some way, or separate from your body. You may see that word soul and think, that's a bit of me that's going to last when I die. My physical body will decay, my soul will remain alive and well because my soul is separate from my body. And certainly there are parts of Paul's writings where that would be supported by the Bible. But it's very important for you to hear that that is absolutely not what the Old Testament understands by this word soul. Nefesh, a word that is used roughly 700 times in the Old Testament, a common word. And in the Old Testament it means all sorts of things, but starting, its starting is with breathing. Nefesh, breath. And that start takes us to anything that's living. Anything that has life, that's animated. And from there we go to the thing that makes us live. The thing that gets our body awake and alive. Nefesh. Curiously at one point nefesh means fish. But let's not dwell on that. (laughs) So this isn't a plea for some eternal immaterial part of ourselves. Here we're saying, the very thing that keeps me alive, the breath within me, the breath my creator gave me, that part of me yearns for you in the night. It's as though I could easily say, my liver yearns for you, my kidneys yearn for you, my whole body yearns for you. Now, why I think this is important is because if we lose track of this idea, we can lose track of the role of the church in healthcare, as we have done, as you and I have allowed it to happen. If you go to the 12th century in Cambridge and look at the histories of some of the churches there, St Andrew's Chesterton being one, Every single one of the churches then had a GP surgery attached to the church. I don't quite mean GP surgery. But the only health care that was provided in Cambridge in the 12th century was provided by the churches. There was nothing else. Nothing. Each church took very seriously that they would employ a physician or something like that. In St. Andrew's Chesterton, you can even see where that GP surgery was. In Nigeria now, today, the Anglican Church in Nigeria provides one-third of the healthcare needs of that country because it takes very seriously the business of looking after its people. Now, we, of course, have the great National Health Service. 
for which I'm 100% a fan of and committed to working with and for. And that National Health Service has allowed us to abandon our calling as churches to provide health care. Because we've said to ourselves, well, someone else is doing that. The government is sorting that out. But we've lost our way. We've lost all those biblical injunctions for us to care about those who are sick. And what we've done is we've said that's the job of just a few people in our church to pray for the sick. And that is sufficient. The National Health Service is not sufficient. And if you believe it is, then it must mean you haven't used it. You do not get holistic care of body, mind and soul in the National Health Service. And those of us who work in it know that more than anyone else. We are inadequate. We are not doing what we wish we could do. And it's going to get worse over the next few years. There's no question of that. So don't rely on the National Health Service to look after the sick in this community. That is not sufficient. And so what should we do? Well, employ a parish nurse for sure. What a wonderful sign that is to this community that there's an individual here who's prepared to do this and you as a church are prepared to support them. That's extraordinary. And I hope you will encourage her to get out there. Out there. Of Jesus' healing miracles, of which there are 40, 36 were out there. Only four were in a temple, were in a place of worship. Yes? This is not the healing place. It's from here that the healing goes on. Please. This Old Testament idea of what the body is and what vitality is and what life is is emerging from our organs and our physicality is so helpful as a repudiation of the dualism that says spirit and religion of the church, the body which will decay is for the National Health Service. But there's a a word that's even better. And that's this word, peace. And if you want a one-word summary of this sermon, and I suspect you might want one, please take away this word, shalom. Shalom. You've all heard it. So the Hebrew that's translated peace here is shalom. Shalom means all sorts of things, but apart from anything else, it's a greeting in Hebrew. It's related to the same greeting, salam aleikum, in Arabic. There are similar words in Parsi. Uh, There are similar words in Hindi. So the final statement in the reading we had today is, you will ordain peace for us. Lord, this is The ultimate gift for us. Shalom. Peace. So what does it mean? So this is straight out of a Hebrew dictionary. 
to make good, to be or to make peace, to restore wellness, to make safe or complete a reality and a hope of wholeness for an individual, for society and the whole world. There is an Orthodox Christian prayer which Orthodox Christians are encouraged to pray every day. That is a prayer that God heals the whole world today. Wouldn't that be extraordinary if we prayed that every day? Not just healing this or that, not healing for me or for her or for him, but for the whole world today. But the final point I wanted you to really take from this word, Shalom, is it not only is describing a place where all is whole and well, but it also describes the activity and movement towards it. So when I say to you, Shalom, I'm not only saying, good morning, how are you, da, 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 da. I'm not only saying, wouldn't it be great if there was a world where there was no illness or sickness or insecurity or war, but I would be also asserting a hope and saying, I hope today we will move towards wholeness. Because if we have this picture of heaven and earth as so perfect that it is impossible for us to really believe in it today, then there's a danger we'll give up. But if we say we can believe in a process that moves today towards wholeness and healing, to security to peace, to justice, then that's a great incentive today to do something. Shalom. That's my one word summary. As we go into the New Testament, and I hope that over the next few weeks we'll do that, this shalom is picked up and you see in Jesus' healings, Healings of the physical, of the mental, the psychological, the spiritual, and at the same time in the same person, of structures of injustice and insecurity. Jesus brings shalom in all its attributes. And if we take shalom as our guiding word, then surely we can say this is the image of a healing community, a community that is working towards, actively towards bringing peace, security, justice, health, psychological steadfastness, spiritual maturity. Shalom. So uh, one of my jobs is to go round the Diocese of Ely and advise people on the healing ministry. And I've seen errors. And I want to give you three principles that will guard you from errors. The first error is that people do not heal. Your healing ministry group, your prayer group, does not heal. There's no one here who heals. 
The best you and I can do is provide the space and the opportunity for God to heal. And that may be doing nothing, it may be providing silence, it may be providing comforting space, it may be doing nothing more than saying, God, please help. I have no idea what to do. It's God who heals, not people. It's very easy for people to get bogged down, secondly, in whether God truly does heal miraculously, physically today, and to make that an argument within the church about whether we should promote healing or not. But there's nothing in the Bible that divorces that from shalom from the ordinary natural healing of our bodies, from the hard work of doctors, nurses, psychotherapists, OTs, whatever, in bringing ordinary healing into the lives of our people. And God's healing is not confined to this place. It may be in the life story of someone who experiences healing that a conversation you have with them in your workplace or playing sport or in some social event, that may be God's healing at work. That opportunity for you to speak may be more profound than anything else. This is a liberal, wide, gracious context in which healing occurs. And then the final thing not to get wrong is to imagine that you, some of you, are sorted and it's only the odd bods who need healing. I'm sorry to break this to you, but you're all odd bods. I believe in the eyes of God you are all disabled. You are so limited. You're so sick. You're so incomplete for what is possible. But the difference between you with your theology degree and you who's got nothing in terms of academic qualifications, I believe from God's vantage point, is nothing. We're all in this together. So this is my prayer of blessing for you, you odd bods. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.